Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series, brought to you by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Jack Martin. Recently, we sat down with Barbie Zellerzer, the Raymond Williams Professor of Communication, Associate Dean for Research, and Director of the Center for Media at Risk at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. I'm Barbie Zellerzer. I'm the Raymond Williams Professor of Communication at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. And I, um, in addition to being a, a regular faculty professor, um, I am also director of the Center for Media at Risk, um, which I set up to address uh, political intimidation uh, against uh, media practitioners. Okay, so do you want to kind of get a little bit deeper into that and what you do with that? What I do with that is we've constructed, we've set up a hub um, to think about and strategize uh, the ways in which media practitioners across the spectrum are being hit uh, politically, are being threatened and intimidated politically. And, and when I say across the spectrum, that doesn't only mean journalists. It also means um, uh, documentarians. It means people in the entertainment sector. And it means practitioners of all sorts who use digital platforms. And the idea being is that, you know, when you have a political situation that we would characterize as creeping authoritarianism, um, authoritarians and autocrats will find the weakest link um, to kind of uh, penetrate and be able to uh, shape uh, media production and media representations in a way that befits their desires. Um, and so we have set up this hub in which we are uh, addressing um, through a whole slew of activities, um, reports, uh, public lectures, symposia, colloquia, um, that bring together scholars and practitioners uh, and assist organizations who are dedicated to kind of keeping the, the conditions around media practitioners safe, um, trying to figure out how they can actually strategize together. So how long have you guys been doing that and... When did it really start, and what kind it of actually forced started, you to do it? It actually started um, when, uh, right when Donald Trump was elected, and at that point in time, I was actually a fellow at the Collegium for Advanced Study in, in the University of Helsinki in Finland, and it was really hard watching from abroad as the election came down, but it was al also very instructive, and it was at that point that I decided to transform um, what had been, a, I think it was 12-year program called the Scholars Program in Culture and Communication, which I had set up and was running very, um, very productively at Annenberg, um, I decided that I needed to kind of um, ramp up my investment um, in thinking about media practitioners in this current uh, political climate. And so I switched everything up, and by the end of the year, within a year, uh, we actually launched um, launched the center. So over these last few years with Trump as president and you working on this uh, center, have you seen any changes or have you seen, what have you noticed, any trends with media practitioners? or? Wow. Okay. Um, I would say to begin with, um, there have been many trends. Um, they have not gone in the right direction. Um, I think that media practitioners have found it, by and large, and of course there are always exceptions, but by and large they have found it quite difficult to separate themselves from very entrenched 
somewhat unconscious uh, modes of practice. Um, the models that they ascribe to, the uh, norms that they follow, the aspirations that they attach to their, their uh, media work um, are not suited uh, to working under an autocratic regime. I mean, it's, it's even taken quite some time for people to call Trump an authoritarian, right? The same way it took a very long time for media workers to call Trump a liar, right? So there's been this kind of systematic and repetitive lag between uh, what's happening in the government uh, and what's happening on the ground. And I will say that the Center for Media at Risk is not only about the U.S. Um, it's about uh, uh, global intimidation in multiple continents, on multiple continents. And I think that what we're seeing now is that the U.S. really needs to learn from the rest, um, that it's not the West leading the rest of the world, as we've long assumed, but that it is countries like the Philippines or Thailand uh, or China um, in which media practitioners have figured out how best to resist what goes on in terms of political intimidation. We in the United States are not there yet, and I, um, I, I'm, I fear that it's going to take quite some time before we actually get there. What do you think would help us start trending in the positive direction? I think journalists and news organizations and media practitioners writ large have to start looking at their, their kind of unconscious assumptions about how they work and who they work for and why they do what they do. Um, I think that, you know, you know long-held normative aspirations of objectivity and balance and deference and moderation just don't work in this climate. And though there were journalists and news organizations, specifically the Washington Post and the New York Times, that early on said to media practitioners, hey, we need a new textbook, it just hasn't happened. And so, uh, you know, I, that, that's not to make little of the, the, the mess of pressures that media workers are under. And, I, and by that I mean not only political, but certainly uh, labor-directed, uh, precarious situations for working, uh, economic, uh, bad economic straits. It's not to make, make light of any of that, but if we don't figure out what isn't working occupationally, I don't think that all the rest is even going to matter. Okay. Um, yeah, so do you think there needs to be, like, a sort of intensity matched by the media that gets placed on them by the president and the... Look, I think that there needs to be a different way of covering the government. Um, we know in, in autocratic states, right, you know, journalists have always learned that you don't go to the government for information. Mm -hmm. You don't give the government the kind of carte blanche, um, blanket coverage uh, that we tend to give the government here. You, you do a lot more investigative work around the sides, right? Um, you're, out, you're out of your realm of comfort. You don't go to your same sources. Um, that needs to be done, and it needs to be done quickly. Um, even I, I was looking this morning in my own, my own uh, home newspaper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, had, a, had a, a headline saying, Trump suggests something that it's okay to go to work with the coronavirus. Well, add in the word erroneously. Add in the word mistakenly. Add in the word falsely. Don't just give the coverage, right, that journalists have long assumed that, you know, they're there to provide. I mean, this is where the whole notion of covering the body comes from. Covering the body was a kind of 
um, label given to journalists needing to be around the head of state in case that something ever happened to him or her. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in this country, it's only him, right? Um, and and so there's this there is this you know um, beginning point in terms of allocation of resources, who is where, who is covering what, with which technology that automatically assume that we need to be covering uh, the government and its head of state. Uh, that's not necessarily to uh, the benefit of a more freely flowing uh, information. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be more than just straight up reports. There has to be. I feel like people just are don't look into it because they might be scared of what could happen because if someone tries. I mean, we see what he says about journalists, and I mean, he has no problem attacking them when they try to. Right. Do and him wrong. And right. So and not only do, does he have no problem attacking them, but I think that what happens is that we don't see the kind of solidarity in among the media uh, and media workers that that is absolutely essential for people being able to push back. Right. And so, you know, what we get are 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 um, media workers looking out for themselves and or their own news organizations rather than, you know, collectively kind of saying, no, you can't do this to CNN. And if you do this to CNN, you're not going to get coverage from anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's been interesting, too, just especially early on, just those early press conferences were always just so hostile. And it was just like unlike anything. I mean, I'm young, but it's unlike anything I'd ever seen from anyone in the government. Well, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. And I'm much older than you mm-hmm. are. So, yeah, you're right. Crazy times, honestly, and now it's just even getting, I feel like it's getting crazier and crazier. Well, it's getting crazier and crazier, but I think that what is the bright light here, right, and it's not a definite bright light, it's kind of blinking at this point, mm-hmm. but, you know, out of these kinds of circumstances come new solutions, right? This is a, a kind of um, uh, opportunity, right? For news organizations, um, for documentarians, for people in the entertainment sector, and I, I on purpose include them in this in this um, kind of scenario because, of course, entertainment is a huge, huge uh, venue for kind of channeling opinion and intimidation in response, and and uh, digital digital posters. Um, it's it's time for them to recognize that if we don't do something now there won't be something to do, right? If we don't fill this space with new solutions, somebody else, not a media worker, is going to do it for mm-hmm. us. Yeah, the interta- it's interesting to bring up the entertainment part because that is become such a big part, especially with uh, like social media, like Twitter. Like Celebrities have never been more involved, I feel like, and especially with young people who they're trying to get to vote. If they see that some of their favorite celebrities or athletes speaking up about politics, it'll get them more interested to go out and vote. Right. We've long had in this country a kind of undercurrent of not getting involved, right? And as a former reporter, I this is in my in my gut. I still to this day can't put a bumper sticker on my car, right? So, uh, you know, there is this kind of premise that in order to be good to the public, in order to cater to the public good, what we need to be doing um, is not offering perspective. And that has worked wholly in the opposite direction from what we might have anticipated. Yeah, I saw something, uh, an interesting article on Twitter, screenshots, and is a kind of like satire from this one writer for the Washington Post talking about maybe Joe Biden's not that bad. It was just completely sarcastic. But it's interesting seeing somebody take a stance like that 
and just be like, look, like this isn't right. Like offering their own perspective rather than just like reporting it. It was like really refreshing to see that. It is refreshing. And and if you think about it, I mean, this has to do with emotions as well. We we engage with things because we care about them. We engage with things because they make us feel. We engage with things because we have opinions and likes and dislikes and biases. This is part of who we are as humans. And the presumption that that actually should stay out of the public record for the public good absolutely makes no sense. Yeah. I'm hoping just over these next few years they kind of figure out a solution just because it's been like so weird just like seeing so much hostility going on with like the news when it's supposed to be something that just like keeps everybody informed. Right. And, you know, I mean, because I'm substantially older than you, I mean, I, I you know, I feel bad for folks of your age. You know, this is not a good age to be coming of age, right? Unless you can be part of the solution. Right. Unless you can figure out, you know, and I think that this is certainly a lot of what's going on with, you know, the the surge of support for folks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, it, this is about a, 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 a kind of fundamental uh, set of new conditions in which we can imagine how our polity works and how our lives will work. Um, so, again, there is opportunity. You just have to kind of right. locate it and then and then kind of go with the wave. Yeah, I'd see, I mean, I think it was the midterm elections the last time when young people really, they didn't come out as much as they thought they were going to, but they did. And I was listening to something today about how Bernie's really kind of relying on the young people to come out and vote, and they, they're making progress in it, but they still haven't gotten what they want to, but... I, I've just seen, like, so much, even on, like, my own, like, social media and even my own life, just, like, people are, my age, are so much more engaged than we ever have been. And I think early on in the Trump presidency, I don't think that was as much the case. But as it's kind of started to take course and get to this point where he's up for re-election, that people have really kind of, like, noticed, like, okay, like, it's, we got to do something. Right. And that's, that's essential. Mm -hmm. Right. So there is, like, a shining light, right, in the midst of all of this darkness, right? These dark times do give yeah, there is some hope. Yeah. It's yep. just, I don't know. We got to see what happens. So uh, I was going through what's, I would, I'm going to kind of want to talk about some of your past projects. Um, so what's it kind of like diving into projects like About to Die and Remembering to Forget? So it's interesting that you picked those two books because they, they are, in my mind, very closely linked. Um, I don't ever go into a topic for the topic, right? So people call me a Holocaust scholar from remembering to forget. I'm not a Holocaust scholar. I'm a media scholar who uses the Holocaust or uses, in covering the body, uses the Kennedy assassination or in About to Die, uses pictures of people facing impending death um, as a way to kind of get at the more general question, which I maintain that I have never left in, in whatever it is, 25, 30 years of, of scholarship, how do journalists credential themselves? Um, how do they create themselves as arbiters or translators or spokespeople for events going on in the world? Um, so it's always a kind of what is the critical event that can best showcase the kinds of tensions that I'm actually interested in, in kind of uncovering. Um, with uh, remembering to forget, this was a tension about 
the rise of photojournalism as part of daily journalism, right? This was a moment at which the camera all of a sudden became, um, not all of a sudden, it was certainly incremental um, over years. However, this was the first event that really needed the camera uh, to convince disbelieving publics that what they were seeing was real. Um, and so there was a kind of um, connection to the to the validation and legitimation of photography in news uh, that was connected to the liberation of the concentration camps in World War II. In About to Die, um, I look at something that bothered me in both of my earlier books, which was what was it about the status of death that had um, journalists kind of um, moving toward pictures, but moving toward pictures in very weird ways. And I, I realized that the words um, could be much more graphic than the pictures. And so that was kind of the, the tension that I began to explore. Um, and I found, of course, that there were real uh, uh, um, entrenched uh, contours, real entrenched patterns um, for when a photo would describe, would actually depict um, death. And many of those patterns had to do with its suggestibility, right? Its porousness, its openness, it, the fact that it actually was never depicted as death itself. We don't see corpses, but we see pictures of people facing death. And, and so that, for me, what that, what that suggested is that about to die photos are an invitation to emotions, right? They're an invitation for us to feel um, uh, something about this person who is about to die but has not yet died in the in the picture. Yeah, in one of my classes uh, last spring, Media Ethics, we looked at the picture of the falling man from 9-11. That was kind of a topic of discussion. Like, he's not, he hasn't died yet, but he's going to and just kind of like, just like discussing like the usage of it and all that. Right. I mean, you can think about the difference between seeing a man in the midst of falling, right? So y your your heart says, oh, I hope he lands okay, right? right? Or I hope after this picture was taken, somebody somebody blo blocks his fall and he and saves him, right? Um, as opposed to seeing a dead body on the ground, in which you are you 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 know it becomes very objectified. You know, you're looking at a fact of death doesn't really invite engagement, right? Right. The way the same photo cut mid mid sequence. Um, clearly does mm -hmm. yeah because like i guess if it's like a picture of a corpse it's just kind of like well he's he's dead and then right before it's just yeah you don't know what's going through the mind right. all this stuff right so how long does like a book like that take to put <laughs> together oh my goodness the the question of the century um look uh, i were i probably worked on about to die about 10 years um I, you know, I worked on remembering to forget less than that, but not so much less than that, maybe seven years covering the body was my doctoral dissertation. And now I'm working on a book about the Cold War, which I've already been working on for 10 years. Um, before anybody was talking about Cold War II, um, I was already on it. So I hope that nothing explodes in the global mm -hmm. in the global sphere uh, that will make Cold War II uh, become uh, kind of archaic before I actually finish the mm -hmm. book. So is that is like a concurrent process, like working on a project like that? Like, will you have like spans where like you put together like a lot of pieces and maybe go like focus on another part or another work? Yeah, look, I mean, we're all multitaskers in right. the academy, and the better we multitask, the better academics or the more productive academics we can become. So yes, of course, I'm also working on short-term projects. 
I'm, a, I'm an associate dean for research at, at, at Annenberg, so there's administrative tasks that I'm always dealing with. I run a center, right? So th there's, there's always a kind of back and forth uh, between what needs to be attended to right now and this backdrop um, of my book in progress, which you know basically is all over my house at this point. You can't walk into any room without seeing piles of books that are kind of slated to be uh, engaged with at the weekend. Okay. Um, so do you think journalism as a career is trending in a positive direction or has like the emergence of social media use and more multimedia journalism help or hurt the career? So look, I mean, you know, journalism is an entity that adapts to different technologies and new media um, uh, is the latest technology, right? It's the latest kind of uh, invention um, or venue um, through which journalism needs to adapt itself. That is not to say that journalism itself disappears from the picture. There is a craft that is connected to being a journalist. And I think that we forget that a lot, right? We forget about what it constitutes, what it takes to actually be a journalist and sustain journalistic work across technologies. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, there, there's research out there that argues that much of the information that, uh, that appears anyways in social media really is derivative of, you know, the kind of, the, the kind of fundamental uh, news organizations that still exist. Uh, is journalism trending as an occupational choice for students? I sure hope so, because I think there's no more important, no, no, no moment that is more important than now uh, for us to have folks actually doing good journalistic work. Yeah, I mean, I see here at least in some classes, like there are like a lot of people who are still excited about getting into journalism, even though there's so many people who say don't go into journalism, like for a plethora of reasons, but there's still people who want to go in and they want to do this work and actually like change what's going on. Right. And, and, and what better circumstance to do this work in and to have impact than now, right? Mm -hmm. This is not, this is not a moment in time where we can just kind of sit on our laurels and, you know, watch things go by and wave as they do, right? This is a time to be involved. It's a time to be involved as journalists, as activists, as, you know, all kinds of engaged professionals um, in any way we can. And, you know, I think that, you know, many of the things that we've talked about in terms of new norms regarding objectivity or perspective, new norms regarding aggressiveness or deference, right, they're, they're needing to be developed. And they will only be developed, I think, uh, from the bottom up, uh, because I think that the top down um, still doesn't get how much their transformation is central to this moment. So what do you think are some things that journalism educators could focus on or do to really help prepare this new generation of journalists when they get enter the field? Right. I think the, the most important thing is really understanding that journalism on the ground does not look like journalism in our head. Right, we have aspirations about what journalism should be uh, that I think have, uh, particularly of late, but I would argue for quite some time now, have been blinding us to what are the contingencies of what of how journalism actually operates on the ground. Um, that's the case here in the U.S. It's even more the case in terms of the kind of Anglo-American bias in journalism scholarship, right, vis-a-vis -vis the the rest of the world. Um, we often say that, you know, uh, democracy needs journalism, and that's true. 
Um, but the, the flip side is not correct, right? We often assume from that that journalism needs democracy. It doesn't. Journalism, it, it, journalism operates in all kinds of political regimes. And so I think that we need to be thinking about the messiness, right, that, that constitutes that very statement, right? The, 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 the differences, the vagaries, the kind of, of um, changes on the ground in terms of what journalists actually have to do to be journalists. Um, and I think that that needs to permeate our, our, our teaching uh, for, for um, budding journalists much more than it does at present. So what kind of advice would you have to current journalism students who are looking to get uh, out there? Right. I think persevere, right, and read widely. I, I think the most important thing that we can do as not only budding journalists but as citizens, right, is to begin to educate ourselves in, in the kinds of um, biases that are part and parcel of the news that we tend to read ourselves, right? And that doesn't matter if you're from the left or if you're from the right. It doesn't matter if you're from the U.S. or you're from Kenya, right? The, the important thing is one needs to always be looking for information sources outside of the, of the realm of familiarity. That is, I think, the, the single most important rule moving forward. I know I've been trying to do a better job of that lately. Just I know because I like how Apple has their news thing, and you can just subscribe to so many different things and get notifications from so many different outlets. Um, I've been trying to listen every morning to NPR. It's got like a fifteen-minute podcast. It's just like three most important stories of the day. Right, right. And then uh, I got like I just got a New York Times student subscription. Just mm -hmm. trying to like get like different right viewpoints of other stories and, and what i would say is when you mention npr and new york times i mean they're pretty similar to each other right, so right. i would say even move more yeah widely. Mm -hmm. yes what kind of publications do you think students should really look to oh my goodness view? i i think it really depends on the on the um on the the topic um what what is i think pretty um pretty clear across the board is long-form journalism of any type is essential to oh, them, yeah. right? And so looking at long-form journalism in whatever whatever modicum it gets presented, right? And, and, and according to whatever political affiliation it reflects, um, that's key. That's absolutely key. Yeah. So I guess how have you seen journalism change since you entered the field? Wow. <laughs> I mean, I entered the field quite some time ago. Um, look, I, I think that with the changes in technology, I mean, we're talking from the, the 1970s and 1980, early 1980s, uh, the changes in technology have clearly uh, shifted, right? Uh, the changes in economic structure have clearly shifted. I mean, journalism has not yet found its business model, right? That's key. Um, Occupationally, I don't think things have changed as much as they need to. And so the question is, is as technology, as um, uh, economics, and as political environments change, so too does journalism. I mean, this is part of a kind of institutional field in which different institutions exist side by side, and they... They, they, they kind of bump up and, 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 and you know, sideswipe each other so that when there, there are changes, fundamental changes in the market, there are fundamental changes in journalism. Um, I think that journalism's occupational model has continued um, 
to assume that those changes don't affect journalists. And so there's a kind of open-eyedness, right, that we, we need to be having more um, in journalism as we move forward. I don't know that that actually answers the question of mm -hmm. how things have changed, but I think that the changes across institutions are patterned, right, and they occur repeatedly. It's not like the changes now are that fundamentally different, right, uh -huh. than the changes, you know, in the 1950s and 60s when television came on the scene, right? Or in the 20s and 30s when radio came on the scene, right? So, so you, you know, you get these kind of parallel um, situations in which new, new, new parameters are introduced. Um, and journalism, you know, has to stay afloat with each of them. Uh, the, the one thing I will say that journalism has changed pretty fundamentally and this is because of all of these changes, is in the degree of precarity, right? Um, you know, the fact that stringers uh, and freelancers and fixers uh, today constitute a far greater, more robust uh, dimension of what we call news work um, is, you know, it should be up for, up for consideration, right? The fact that foreign news desks have been cut out all over the world should be up more for consideration because we need journalism in a democracy to survive, right? Right. Definitely. And and if we aren't figuring out how to make that work, um, you know, this is this is going to have absolutely dire uh, ramifications mm -hmm. for our polity. Do you think the journalism business model will ever get figured out or look, there are folks who are thinking creatively about this. Um, yeah, I think it will. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of detachment going on, you know, from capitalist and, 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 and you know, particular kinds of economic models. Um, right now, however, I would argue that the political sphere is far more dire um, in need of attention than the economic one. And that's not to say that the economic one isn't important. Mm -hmm. It's just to say that that seems to be pushing um, at the fiber of journalism um, very, very uh, harshly right now. Yeah, it's, like we've said, it's a really interesting time. So thank you for coming on and talking to me. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, you can look us up at clas.uiowa.edu backslash sjmc backlash for more information on the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. And for more Iowa Journalist podcasts, keep listening on your favorite podcast service. Have a good day.